Welcome to the In Common Podcast. This is Hatley Post. This Inside episode comes from full episode 81 with Nejem Rahim. Nejem is an associate professor of economics at Emerson College, and here he speaks with Michael about the similarities between his childhood experiences in Bangladesh and Nepal in the New Mexico Asakias. The two discuss the complexity of the systems based upon Western codifications of water rights and the subsequent valuation given to water in the U.S., and how this lacks a complete valuation of the social importance of water in the Asakias. This is the In Common Podcast. I want to get to the Asakias and your work on them. Okay. Um, I would love to hear your take on what attracted you to the Asakias as mm-hmm. uh, a subject for your dissertation. Like what about them is like special to you? Yeah. So the Asakias are an experience good, right? As much as anything. Uh, my initial connection with them was I was talking to William Gonzalez, who you know, or you may remember. And William is my friend Leah's stepdad. So I know her, I know William through my friend Leah. And so we were hanging out up, up there in Las Vegas or maybe down in Santa Fe, I can't remember where. And I was talking about my frustrations with trying to find a dissertation project. And William, like he does, he's like, oh, you're getting a PhD in environmental economics? Well, we need environmental economics to make a legal case against a lot of water transfers out of Asakias. And I was like, okay, I've heard of these Asakias, but like, um, I want a little, little more background. And uh, so I got a kind of crash course in Asakias from William Gonzalez, and then subsequently from many other people, and of course from readings. But the thing that, so a couple things hooked me. I think I told you this, but when I was a kid, my dad worked for the UN. And my dad's from Sri Lanka, which has this ancient, ancient, highly sophisticated hydraulic culture, right? Like incredible irrigation systems stretching back thousands of years in Sri Lanka. Amazing degrees of engineering, water storage, water sharing, complex rules about them. Tons of work published on it. And that turns out to be an object of interest in my family. My uncle Omar, who's a, who's a civil engineer, had worked with R.L. Brohier, who had written these like really big books on the irrigation systems, the classical irrigation systems of Sri Lanka. And I've spent time around that. And then also when I was a kid, we lived in Bangladesh and Nepal, both pretty wet countries with some exceptions. But I remember in Bangladesh when I was a kid, so in the lake behind our house, it would dry up during the dry season and people would, it would be patties, right? It would be rice patties. And there was a big commotion one day. And my recollection of it from when I was seven or eight was that what had happened is somebody had cut the wall or dike between his field and somebody else's field to get that guy's water into his field. And the guy whose water was stolen killed him with a hoe. Wow. Just like killed him with a farming implement. And I was like, I don't understand. Like there's Bangladesh is a delta. It's, it's more water than anything else, right? It's like, why are people fighting over this thing that's everywhere? And somebody pointed out at the time, they're like, we have a lot of water, but like that water was going to grow that guy's rice. Somebody takes that water out. It's a, it's a pretty violent crime really to like take someone's food away, right? <laughs> in, a, mm-hmm. in like one of the poorest countries on earth back in the seventies. And so like the response was proportional in this guy's perspective. And when I started talking to the Asequieros 
I thought, this is so interesting. I love when aspects of my childhood, which was largely spent in South Asia, manifest in the United States, which I was always taught was a really different place. And so to me, the acequias being these gravity fed, pretty simple from a mechanical perspective or from an industrial perspective, maybe pretty simple systems. They're incredibly sophisticated really from a number of perspectives, engineering, social, so on. But they're also like this just direct connection with the landscape that at least at the time, I know much more about that now, but like at the time I thought was really unusual in North America. And it reminded me of an aspect of home, home being my childhood in Nepal, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, and India, right? And so I was like, it's not just the poverty of it, it's that it's because New Mexico is pretty poor, but like, it's the like, it's like the directness of it. And so I felt very, even though culturally I'm not from Northern New Mexico, Northern New Mexico, Hispanic culture is a very particular thing, super mm-hmm. particular, um, and not that in any kind of way, but I felt an affinity with the landscape. I felt an affinity with the systems. I felt an affinity with the communities. Um, and kind of like we were talking about at the beginning, it gave me an opportunity to spend a ton of time talking to people in a state where I lived and where, you know, I'm always interested in the history of places, but like I got to learn so much about New Mexico. And I feel like you don't get that in a lot of ways. (laughs) You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. New Mexico is kind of a, it's kind of a colony in the sense that people live on the surface of it but it's thousands of miles deep, right? It's like thousands of miles deep. And that's not even scratching the whole indigenous history of the place. So like, I just was super drawn to that. And the project was tied into a legal precedent. So I was hoping that this might have some positive consequences for a lot of the communities. We're trying to establish the point that like water rights sales need to consider all of these non-market impacts. Najim, can you can you give listeners just a little bit of background about what these water rights sales are about? Of course, yeah, 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 totally. Sorry, I totally got drawn into the no, and this is all terrific. Jargon. Um, so, but... so in the eastern United States, for those of you who live in Hanover or you know largely eastern Mississippi, the water rights doctrine that prevails is called the Riparian Doctrine, which really suggests that like if water is like water belongs in the river to a certain extent, and you have rights to the water that is adjacent to your property. In the Western United States, the dominant sort of legal paradigm is the prior appropriations doctrine, which is derived from mining laws in the 1870s. And it really states that the first person to take water out of a water body is the person with the senior most rights. Therefore, during dry seasons or times of shortage, that person has priority over all others. And water can be sold out of a channel, which, which is tech really, as I, as I understand the doctrine, it's not possible here in the East. We have way more water, which is part of the, the reason for this, right? So in New Mexico, people, um, you'll have these irrigators who are typically fairly low income people in fairly poor parts of the state. Um, not always, but generally speaking. And um, you will have, for instance, let's say you have a development going in that needs water. That development can buy these surface water rights from farmers, right? And the surface water rights so that's, you know, it's legal 
Uh, there's nothing shady about it per se, but there was a decision in the 80s, I think, Art Insinias, who is the, uh, the presiding judge, I think on that particular case, made the argument that if a community, so this, this every, every, every sentence here has like huge ramifications, right? If yeah. a community decides that the impact of a particular water sale is adverse to the functioning of an irrigation system in that community, which obviously it could be, the community can band together to stop that sale, right? So the, in, in American US jurisprudence, the water right is a private good in the sort of shared inheritance of Hispanic, Arabic, and indigenous water law that happens in the Hispanic communities in Northern New Mexico, water is more historically owned collectively because the pressure in a given canal depends on the amount of water that's in the channel. So if you take out water upstream of that, you're going to have less effective hydraulic pressure in these systems, right? So one of the things that the law doesn't explicitly recognize, it might now, but it didn't at the time, there's been a lot of activity from Ben Ray Lujan's office in the Senate recently, so I can't keep up with all of it, is that the water that is used in these irrigation systems provides not only the benefit, which is often quite small, of the crops that are grown from it and sold, if they're sold, right? But it also provides all of these benefits, which folks like Steve Gulden and a bunch of other folks at New Mexico State University are finding that there are all of these hydrologic interactions between the Aseca channels, the main stem river and groundwater systems, right? So it actually, because these ditches are not lined, often the water will leak out of them, which is seen on one hand as an inefficiency, on the other as an ecological interaction. They might provide for riparian habitat for migratory songbirds. They also connect the communities to centuries of culture. So all of those things can be argued from an economic perspective to have monetary benefit. And often the sale of the water right does not recognize the complexity of the good itself. Instead, it says, well, I'm offering you this much money. You're getting this much money from your water now because you're not growing a lot of alfalfa or whatever. You'll get more money by selling it. But will you get more value? <laughs> it's really the question, right? And so that was kind of the thrust of my however many hundred pages dissertation was basically like, so a market on its own won't recognize these things. You need to have a mechanism to formally address all of these components of the sale of water out of an acequia in particular. Was I successful? No, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't get to influence the New Mexico legislature, but I tried. Mm. Yeah, I mean, as you were talking, right, it, it, you could start to map your descriptions of the specific services the Asikis are providing with this taxonomy that you were talking about before, cultural provisioning, yes, regulating, exactly. supporting. Yeah. And I saw in the paper you shared with me that like the groundwater recharge you filed under, like it's a regulating service. Yeah. Um, there's obviously important cultural provisions, provisioning that's happening. Tons, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so it, it, it's, it's interesting, right? Because we're, we're in this still this thorny space of, I mean, you saying that this is the challenge of, of the dollar again, as a signifier of value. This is how markets was well, more than one problem that markets have, but this is a big one is that everything gets smushed into this one value ignoring positive yeah. and negative externalities. Yeah. And so I've, this has always been like an issue with me that 
there is this distinction between public and private in the policy discourse. And some people think that, you know, big government is the problem. And I actually think that, that there's something to that. Centralized governments do do a lot of bad things. They homogenize ecologies and their citizenry. But at the same time, like markets are not this decentralized utopian alternative to the centralized state. They, they do all of these, a lot of these same things. Commodification is just as much about like analytical simplification as anything like a big state does. And markets are often driven by the same cultures that make up whatever the government is. Right. Right. And governments aren't as organized as people think they are. I had great conversations with a friend of mine in Montana who's, I don't remember exactly her position. That's a good point. You know, she'll make the point. She's like, a lot of people she talks to, they're like, well, you work for the government. So I don't want, like she said, I am a person. I am from Montana. Like I live in the same town that you do. (laughs) I, yes, my job is paid for by your tax dollars. Totally agree with that. But like the government is just made up of people. Right. right? I'm not tapped into the hive mind. Because it doesn't work that way. Right. So I agree. I think that's it. So all of those dualities, as with most dualities, are false, meaningless, problematic. Um, And I also think that, so when I, sorry, this is super cool. When I was doing this research in New Mexico, I got onto a radio show. So me and my friend, William Gonzalez, William is like a firebrand activist, organizer, farmer, many generations in the country. Um, We got on this radio show and the, you know, very local Las Vegas, New Mexico. And people would call up after we kind of talked about the project. And I'd say, wait a second, are you saying that the stuff that we just do on a daily basis, that we can demonstrate that that has monetary value and we can weigh that against the monetary value of using the water somewhere else? And I said, yeah, that's pretty much the thrust of it. And they were so excited because to them, in a way it was like, oh, you mean we can show the mainstream system that what we do matters to me that that's at the core of putting the dollar value on right you make it visible you make it visible and you make it comprehensible and everything is in one metric does that squash some accuracy of course it does does it run into all kinds of problems with commodification oh yeah (laughs) oh big time but does it have to no can it be done sensibly yes does that mean it's going to happen that way no good things turn out to be hard to do right like, okay. Yeah, it's just interesting that you're using a tool that is trying to address a problem created by the, a fundamental element of the tool. Yep, yep. It's kind of like bio control. Yeah. yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that's interesting. So have you, Nejim, have you, um, I've not stayed in touch with like the Asakia situation and most of my field work's been in the Dominican Republic for a while and in, like a couple other places. Right. Um, have you, you know, kept in touch since moving I'm, to the, no. as you put it, east of the Mississippi? Exactly. I'm in touch with a lot of the people still. Like I talked to Steve Golden. He and a bunch of others contributed an article to this encyclopedia. I'm regularly in touch with Moises Gonzalez. We try to gin up projects from time to time. I talked with Jose Rivera. But I haven't done anything in New Mexico since that paper that I sent you. And it it's a little heartbreaking, partly because, partly it's a sunk cost thing. Like I just spent, I spent so much of 
like of my life force trying to figure that place out right yeah. like learning about all this stuff and spending so much time it's not that like the state doesn't owe me anything but like i just i feel like i got really close to a lot of that yeah and i feel like i feel like i've got this old friend now who doesn't talk to me as much and it just is a bummer you know um, if you could go there for a weekend what would you do if i go there for a weekend huh if I go for the weekend, I, I would be, it would be largely hedonistic. I would eat a lot of green chili and <laughs> soak in a bunch of hot springs. <laughs> yeah, but if I, if I, if I okay, went a week, a month, yeah, if I went there for a week, I would really start kind of recultivating a bunch of these connections and talking to folks about like stuff we could do because I see work coming out of these groups that I feel is strongly allied to work that I have actually done with these folks. You know, like yeah. I, got to, I got to step into that stream and kind of tweak it in a particular direction, but they are working on that as well. It's not like I taught them all this stuff. So I would really love to be, and I keep trying, like I'm, I'm trying to apply for some funding for a drought project and I was trying to direct it to New Mexico, but the federal agency we're working with, it's heading more towards Massachusetts. This is fine, I live in Mass, that's great. I love it here, but like, yeah, I, uh, yeah. Like that paper, the ecosystem services paper with all the different nomenclature in it, mm -hmm. that was a blast. Mm. It was a, it was genuinely fun. You mm. know, it was super. Like we had, but it's like fifteen authors, people from all these different fields. We're basically trying to find out like what the words are to stuff. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and then what the English language word is for that thing. And it's not one, it's not a one-to-one -one mapping, right? It's like, it's like yeah. the ASA maps to like 15 English words, right? So like, I just love that and I miss it. And I would be pretty happy if that's what I got to do. But, you know, people don't want you to publish the same thing just in different locations. <laughs> right. So what even has though, replaced it? Yeah. No, so just, I mean, even though I think that would be actually kind of a good thing. Thanks for tuning in. The In Common Podcast is a partner project of the International Association for the Study of the Commons and the International Journal of the Commons. To explore more episodes of the podcast, as well as our blog, visit our website at www.incommonpodcast.org. Here you will also find a list of the members of our recently expanded team, as well as a link to our Patreon page, where you can make a small donation to help us cover our operating costs. You can also follow us on Twitter at InCommonPod. Thanks again.